And it is indeed Valentine's Day, but it's also White Coat Wednesday, and that means our medical correspondent, Dr. Mitch Shulman, is with us. Good morning, Dr. Mitch. Good morning, and a happy St. Valentine's Day to you and to everyone listening. Indeed. Now, have you got yourself all looked after for that today? You've done, you've made the necessary arrangements to keep yourself out of trouble? I hope so. I'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right, isn't it? No matter how hard you try, no good deed can go unpunished. But um, so let's talk about how to stay healthy. (laughs) Aside from aside from looking after Valentine's Day, that's a good way to stay healthy. Um, Caffeine in your blood might affect body fat and diabetes risk, and it's one of the many reasons, I guess, why people say moderation in all things, including consumption of caffeine. But tell us about that. Yeah, it turns out that we've known for a long time that people who use caffeine. Not excessively, but as you said, on a regular basis, are less likely to develop Parkinson's disease, liver cancer, diabetes, and may even have a lower risk of certain heart problems. And the question is why? And the thought was maybe it is the caffeine, maybe it's not something else in coffee, and if it is caffeine, what's going on? So this is a massive study, and what they basically did was they looked at the genetics of how caffeine is metabolized by your body. And there's some people who naturally just don't break it down as quickly, so they tend not to drink as much caffeine, but their levels tend to be higher than those of us who may metabolize it faster and therefore have to drink more to get the same bang for the, for, 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 from the caffeine. And they found that those people who are slow metabolizers, who therefore probably had higher levels of caffeine circulating in their system, were less likely to develop diabetes, type 2 diabetes, as well as have lower weights, lower BMIs, and less fat. And we think it's because caffeine basically gets your body to burn fat better. I think that's the best way of looking at it. And so they're thinking that there may be a benefit to caffeine, and the question is if they could mimic this effect without some of the other things that people get when they drink caffeine or take in caffeine in other ways, uh, that they might be able to mimic that effect without some of those other um, side effects that come from caffeine. So what I always tell people is, this is reassuring if you have from, we'll say about two to four cups maximum of coffee, regular strength coffee a day. And that's probably okay. If you don't already drink coffee, it's not a reason to start drinking coffee. I think it's more something that reassures people that if you are drinking coffee, if you are taking in caffeine in that way, it's okay. The one thing I warn people about is remember caffeine's in many different sources. And if your source of caffeine is pop and it's uh, full of sugar as well, that's obviously not doing Mm -hmm. you any good. And the extra sugar, the extra calories may overwhelm and outdo any of the benefits that you might be getting from the caffeine in the beverage. Yeah, people do forget caffeines in all kinds of uh, different things. Uh, you know, turning from that to uh, heart health and to, you know, the incidents we still do see, uh, unfortunately, lots of times of cardiac arrest. Uh, they have had many, many uh, things happen over the years uh, to help to respond to a cardiac arrest when it occurs. And there's a new response uh, that is uh, hopefully going to save even more lives. Yes, you've seen it all on TV. Uh, Someone says, you know, get the paddles, and they spark a person, use electricity to... Uh, to stop a bad rhythm and to give the heart a chance to restart. The bad rhythm is called ventricular fibrillation, where the pumping chambers of the heart quiver rather than pump. There's also ventricular tachycardia, where it beats so fast that it just can't do any effective pumping. And if that's allowed to maintain itself to continue for more than a minute or two, the person's dead. And that's why quick defibrillation is probably the single most important thing after learning how to do those chest compressions, pulmonary resuscitation, CPR. So the pumping on the chest and the sparking using a device is 
very, very important. And that's why we have automated external defibrillators, AEDs, all over your community. And there's something that if you don't know how to use, you should. It's very simple. You can watch videos. It really, really, really is very simple to use and full safe. There's no if, no ends, no buts. It will not uh, go off inappropriately. So you can have complete confidence in using it. But we still know that it doesn't work in everyone. And the question is, why not? And so what they've come up with is dual sequence defibrillation. In English, instead of just one spark in one plane, they basically give two sparks, one right after the other one, one in the traditional position of where the pads are, and the other using a different position of the pads using a second defibrillator. Now, obviously, before this can become common practice, we need more studies to make sure that it really makes a difference, and we're going to have to come up with an easy and efficient way of doing it. It's tough enough to get people to use one AED. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how much more difficult it's going to be for them to get to use two? So for now, don't worry about it. Do what you can. Do CPR, call the paramedics, and uh, get a defibrillator there as quickly as possible. But for me, uh, as a master instructor, actually, in ACLS, Advanced Cardiac Life Support, it's something I've got to get my head around in terms of how practically we're going to be able to do that to help more people. Exactly. But you are right. Uh, the uh, machines are basically fail-safe. I've taken the course myself and, uh, you know, because uh, the fear that I had was that I'd end up shocking the, the person and hurting them or myself. Uh, and uh, they are pretty foolproof. And, and it, I would encourage people to take uh, the course taught by people like yourself because it can help you to save a life sometime when you least uh, expect it. Um, and the person you're going to save is going to be a family member yes, right. at home, statistically yeah. speaking. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, there are some differences we find out from research, and that's why medical research is important, uh, in the blood of exceptionally long-lived people. Uh, what, what are the differences we see? This is brilliant. What they basically did was they looked at the blood of people in their 60s, late 60s, around 65, and then they followed them. And they followed all the people for years and years and years. And of those people, normal people, they found that only 2.7% made it to 100 and beyond. Okay. And then they went back and they checked the blood of these people who'd made it to 100, at 100 and beyond, and compared it to what their blood looked like at 65, and compared it to the people who didn't make it to 100 and what it looked like at 65. And lo and behold, they found that there were different ratios, different uh, levels of different things in your blood that seemed to be present more often if you made it to the ripe old age of 100 and beyond. Things like cholesterol, things like creatinine, which is a muscle component, things like uric acid. And so the question becomes, are these markers of something going on in the body? And their feeling is these people probably have less inflammation. They probably have less disease going on in their bodies, and that may be what's going on right here. So I wouldn't aim necessarily for the marker. I aim for the reason why the marker is the way it is. And the basic thing is taking good care of yourself, being active, and trying to reduce inflammation by anything that would be inflaming or bothering your body. Um, um, and so we may have to figure out a medication that can do that because there may be forces that we can't influence without a medication. And that's the important thing here. Now that we know what some of these differences are, we can try and figure out what made them, why are they there, and what can we do to, to give people a, a leg up, as it were. By the way, the proportion of people living to be 100 is increasing dramatically. They're probably the fastest growing part of our population. And the 
Good news is a significant number of them are getting to 100 healthy. The bad news is not all of them are. Significant numbers are either unhealthy or frail. And so we've got to do something to improve that because more and more Canadians are going to make it into their 90s and reach 100. Fingers crossed uh, for you and me, Dr. Mitch, and everybody you else bet. that are in our lives and everybody else out there listening. I mean, I, I've had discussions with people before where they say they don't want to live to be 100 because they assume it means you're going to be in not very good shape. But you can, I know people who are in their 80s and 90s and 100 who are in great shape. So we'll hope that that, uh, as, as all these different advances happen, that applies to uh, as many of us as possible. Thank you. We'll leave it there. And thank you very much, as always, for enlightening us on these things. Dr. Mitch Schulman, our uh, medical correspondent with White Coat Wednesday. Happy Valentine's Day again. Thank you. You too and to everyone listening.